John chapter 1. This morning in the early service, I found out that this was going to be a two-part message. So this morning, you're going to hear part one of Behold the Glory. We will focus on verse 14 this morning. And then next week, we're going to come back and see Behold the Glory, part two. But I'm going to read these, this paragraph in its entirety. So everything will be in the context of understanding who Jesus is. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Would you please bow with me as we pray now? Lord, we thank You. We thank You for Your gracious and faithful love. We thank you, Father, that even though you are high and lifted up, you have condescended to be with us who are fallen and lowly. And Lord, you, by your power, through the cross and the resurrection, have redeemed us. You have made us your own. You have purchased us. Oh, Father, we confess that our Busyness often distracts us from your glory. Our sinfulness takes us away from thinking about who you are. So this morning I ask that as we dive into this passage, that you would open our eyes to behold the glory of Jesus again. I pray, Father, that what may have become mundane and repetitious to us would now be fresh and new and deeper. Grant this, Lord, so that our love for you will increase and our commitment will grow deeper. I ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name, the church said, amen. Many ways our advances in technology have caused us to become jaded, maybe even a little bit cynical. Things that at one time that would have amazed us, we simply look at and think, oh, that again. Such an example would be spaceflight. Now, NASA sends rockets into space, satellites on a regular basis. We don't think about it with even a second glance. But there was a time when spaceflight, the idea of a man going into space, captured the attention of our nation. Jacob Needleman writes about such an occasion that took place in April of 1975. It was going to be a night launch of Apollo 17. Jacob Needleman along with other journalists had gathered in Cape Canaveral at a distance to watch as Apollo 17 lifted off into space. He said even though they were several miles removed they could still look and see at a distance through high-powered binoculars they could see this rocket that stood 35 stories high. 
And he said as the day went on because it was a night launch and the journalists were waiting, they became a little bit rowdy, talking, even drinking a little bit. They didn't exactly show good manners to one another until it got to be dusk. And then people started to focus. The countdown was going. Ten, nine, eight. And it got to zero. And he said as they were looking across the vast expanse, they noticed this huge monolithic aircraft, spacecraft, began to emit flames. And before they even heard anything, they saw this ball of fire come out and surround the rocket. And then they saw the rocket begin to lift up. And then they heard it. Then they heard this gigantic whoosh that rocked across them like a tidal wave of sound shaking their very lungs. And he said it was an amazing transformation that as they stood there watching this rocket go up into the sky, eyes were lifted upward, mouths came open, hands came down to their sides. And where there was a a rambunctiousness, now there was silence. Where there was just the idea of a mundane story to cover, Now, there was amazement. You and I were made to experience such amazement. Deep down, you and I hunger for something much more than just the mundane, ordinary stuff of this world. We long for something that is transcendent. Something that is above. Something that can lift our souls out of the troubles of this world and remind us that there is something, someone greater. God made us for that. That's why in the book of Ecclesiastes it says God has put eternity in the hearts of humanity. The problem is that we have settled for so much less we have come to believe that what we hunger for this sense of transcendence this sense of awe can be met by the stuff around us you see because we have bought into this idea that the only thing that exists are the things you can touch taste hear or smell or see we think those are the things that will lift our spirits higher and higher and give us the purpose we long for the all that we need and we're finding out that those things that promise transcendence never deliver i believe that's one of the reasons why our culture is sinking deeper and deeper into perversity We're looking for something that will shock us, amaze us. And because we refuse to gaze heavenward and we look around for the material, we look at those things that have become obscene for just that moment to say, but it's like a sugar rush. It's there for a moment and we feel that sense of euphoria and then it's gone and we find ourselves worse than we were before. Then we find ourselves asking, How can this change? Where can we find the sense of awe that we hunger for? The sense of transcendence that we want. And really what we're hungering for is to know God. To know His glory. 
And the problem is, you and I cannot reverse the course that we are on, that our culture is on, by ourselves. You and I cannot get to God to reverse course. He is infinite, we are finite, and we can't bridge that gap. God is eternal, we are temporary, we can't bridge that gap. God is holy, and we are sinners. We can't bridge that gap. But rather than fall into despair, thinking there is no hope, that our souls will continually dwell, seeking to fill our lives with garbage that does not satisfy, God has met us where we are, because where we could not get to God, God has come to us. And that is the whole point of John chapter 1, 1 through 18. John is setting the table for us. He wants us to know at the outset that when Jesus Christ came, Jesus Christ came as God in the flesh. He wanted to leave no doubt as to who Jesus is so that we could know that what we hunger for is found in Him. If we want something that will truly blow our minds, He says, look at Jesus Christ. If you want something that will satisfy your soul with a satisfaction that will not leave you hurting the next day, look at Jesus. Because in Jesus, we behold the glory of God. That's what he ends this prologue with. Verse 14, where we're going to camp out today, makes this clear point. If we want to behold the glory of God, we must behold Jesus. You and I cannot get to God in His glory apart from Jesus Christ. Now to get to that point, he begins in verse 14, and the Word became flesh. Now this is an idea that he introduced to us to in chapter 1 verse 1. But now he returns to the idea of Word a second time at the conclusion of this introduction so we will see the importance of it. He starts with the Word and he ends with the Word. The Word was God and that Word that was God and is God has become flesh. And I'll remind you, the word is really a multifaceted idea. That term logos, it carries with it the idea of the power of God. That God can speak a word and His will is accomplished. God says, let there be light. And guess what? There is light. God says, land divide from the water. And guess what? Land divides from the water. God's creative word to bring that which is not into being. He says became flesh. But another facet of that idea of word is found to the Jews who would have heard this letter, this gospel for the first time. The word carried with it also the connotation of Torah. Instruction, the law. The Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It represents the covenant that God made with His people. And He said, because I have redeemed you, this is how you are to live. So when the Jews hear this, their thinking is not about the power of God to create. Their thinking is the instruction of God has made, been made flesh. It's become human. It would be the idea that God's way for you to live has now been modeled for us. If you're wondering what it looks like to live according to the Torah, he is saying Jesus Christ is the Torah incarnate. If you want the instruction from God on how to live, you've got to go to Jesus. He is the instruction on how to live. Now, he says that the flesh, it became human, fully man and fully God. 
So Jesus was fully divine and fully human. As odd as it is to say, this is a truth that we only think of at Christmas, and we shouldn't. We should be reminded that Jesus Christ was human just as we are. He had to have his diaper changed. And if that strikes you as something crass and shocking, you've never really thought about what it means to say Jesus is fully man. He walked, he sweat, he burped. He got tired. Fully man and fully God on this earth. But now John takes us to another step in understanding that. Look again at verse 14. He dwelt among us. So before we camp out on the flesh too much and we forget the divinity of Jesus, he brings us back in this one phrase, dwelt among us, as to who Jesus is. This idea of dwelt among us is the idea of the tabernacle. The reason I say that is because the Greek word means tent. And in the Old Testament, the tent, the tent of meeting, was the tabernacle that had been constructed. You see, God's people were sinners. And God said, if I come and I dwell in the midst of my people who are sinners, it will not be good for them. So, he instructed Moses to build the tabernacle, a huge tent, outside of the camp. So that God would meet Moses there. So we find out in the Old Testament that whenever Moses needed to speak with God, Moses and Joshua walk out to the tabernacle. Joshua hangs out at the opening. He hangs out at the door. Moses, you want to talk to God? Go ahead. I've heard what happens. I'm fine here. You go. Moses goes in. And then we read that the Shekinah glory of God would descend. That's a cloud of God's glory. There'd be no doubt that God had descended upon the tent of the tabernacle to begin speaking with Moses. And they would dialogue. But now keep in mind, that tabernacle where Moses alone met God was outside of the camp. But now Jesus tabernacled among us. God in the flesh comes. And he is not distant. He comes as the glory of God and he is dwelling among his people. That's why John writes in 1 John, that which we have seen, that which we have touched, that which we have heard. Now God is no longer distant. He is among his people dwelling so everyone can hear and know and experience the glory of God somebody say amen he says that's amazing that's what was happening in Jesus it's like this I mentioned earlier how technology no longer wows us you keep in mind there are things that we do today on our cell phones that were science fiction movies 10 years ago Okay, I can remember watching Star Trek when they would have these things that you could pick up and you could see the other person you were talking to and we played, you know, imaginary games with that. Now it's called FaceTime or Skype. Or if you're old like me, Skype time. And no matter where, where the person is, you can hit FaceTime or Skype and now you talk to them and you see them. Can you see me now? Can you see me? And it's amazing. But now let me ask you this. Even with that technology, where we're able to talk at a distance, is it still not better to have that person at your house, at your kitchen table, to talk with them? Face to face, you can't beat being there. 
Well, that in a way is what he's saying here. In the Old Testament, it was like Skype. God was at a distance. You could talk with him, get to know him, but he was at a distance. But in Jesus, he has come to walk among us, dwell among us, to be one of us in order that we may see his glory. Now, that's where he moves to next. You've seen his glory. You've seen the glory of of Jesus. But now he begins to fill in what that glory is like. What is this glory? Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now we get to define terms. What's meant when we say glory? I could give you the literal definition. The Hebrew, the word glory, kebab, means weightiness, heaviness. It's always a joke whenever the doctor tells you you're putting on weight. Say, no, I'm not putting on weight. I'm just filled with glory. Heaviness. meant the weightiness of God. The Greek word doxae, and you know that word. If you've ever sung the doxology, words of glory, you know what that's about. It speaks of the weightiness of someone's presence. I mentioned the Shekinah cloud of God's glory. That was a luminescent appearance, something tangible where you could see the glory of God. Jesus showed that in Matthew 17 at the transfiguration, where he is transformed and they get a glimpse of his majesty. Notice this glory is different. It's the glory is of the only Son from the Father. Now that's odd. Because in verse 12, we were told that He gave those who believed in His name the right to become children of God. But now we read that He is the only Son from the Father. The way we have to understand it is this. It is saying Jesus is the unique Son of God. You and I are adopted into the family, but Jesus carries a unique status. This verse is like a sponge that has been soaked in the Old Testament. The reference to only begotten son goes back to Genesis 22 verse 2, where God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And God says, I want you to take Isaac, your only son whom you love. Isaac had two boys. I'm sorry, he had, Abraham had two boys, Isaac and Ishmael. But he says, Isaac is the son of the promise through whom God's word will be fulfilled. And he recognized a unique love there. So when it speaks that we have seen his glory, glory is the only son, it's a reminder that you and I may be children of God. We may be sons and daughters of God, but we'll never be like Jesus. We'll never be like Jesus because of two things. One, we will never be divine. We will never be a God. Now, I know there are some thoughts out there, some belief systems that say if you attain a certain level of righteousness, one day you will die and you'll be a God and you'll get your own planet. No. We'll never become gods. We'll never become deities. There will always be a creature creator distinction between us and God so Jesus is unique he doesn't experience that distinction he is fully God we will never be the second thing is this he has a unique love with the father that you and I don't have God loves us but there is a unique love that exists between Jesus 
and the Heavenly Father. This is a glimpse into the Trinity. You'll see a little bit more of it when we get to verse 18 where it talks about the only God who is at the Father's side. It speaks about a neat, unique relationship, a love that goes deeper than anything we can imagine. But the good news is this, God's love is not selfish. On the screen you'll see John chapter 17. Jesus prays, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one. The glory I have. Now this is the glory of the only begotten Son. The glory of this love relationship. Verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may perf become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. We are adopted in the family and Jesus says, Lord, I'm praying they will know you sent me and you have loved them with the same type of love you have loved me. Verse 26, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. His love is not selfish. He is saying that when you are redeemed, he wants you to experience the same love that he has experienced in eternity past in the perfect relationship between Father and Son in the Trinity. It is a love that goes beyond any loves we could ever experience here. And he says, I want you to know that. That's the love that we long for. To know that he knows us and he loves us. And then it goes a step beyond he says, this is a glory of the only begotten Son, the unique Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That phrase, full of grace and truth, describes the glory. What's the glory like? It is God's grace and truth. Once again, to understand this, we need to go back to the Old Testament, to Exodus chapters 33 and 34. Moses came down from Sinai. First time he's got the Ten Commandments and the people have fallen into sin. Pure and simple, ugly, immoral sin. And Moses picks up the Ten Commandments and he destroys them. He goes back up on the mountain then. And God is ready to wipe Israel out. And Moses intercedes. And in this prayer of intercession, Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, you can't handle all my glory, Moses. You're just going to see a little glimpse of it. And then in verses 34 and 6, we see what that glory is. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, look at John 1.14. Full of grace and truth. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, that phrase in Exodus 34, abounding in steadfast love. Steadfast love is translated grace and faithfulness that is the Hebrew word amet we get the word amen from it that means truthfulness God is true to his word beginning to end so he is saying that what Moses experienced on Mount Sinai we experience in Jesus now the question is this out of all the ways God should have, could have shown his glory, why does he focus on grace and truth? God could have shown his glory in being omnipotent. As I said a moment ago, he speaks and he creates. That could have showed his glory. Look how powerful I am. I can speak a word and something comes into being. Or God could have shown his power, his glory, in his omniscience that he knows all things. 
He knows the past. He knows the present. He knows all of the futures that could have been had he so chosen them. Or he could have shown his glory and his providence. How he knows the stars by name. He could have said, look, look up there. You see that star? That's Bob. Over there is Susie. But you know what? That wasn't our greatest needs. His power would have washed over us and left us feeling absolutely helpless because there's nothing that could be done. His omniscience could have swept over us and left us with the knowledge that God knows us and we are sinners. His providence could not save us. We could just say, God is in control, but I'm still hopeless. No, our greatest need was grace and truth. We need the truth of God to recognize who He is and how we have fallen from Him. And we need His grace to redeem us. If we have grace without truth, we have sentimentalism that cannot save. If we have truth without grace, we have legalism that condemns. But God says, I bring both together so that my weightiness, my glory is seen in the grace and the truth that I give to you in Jesus Christ. And notice it's out of the fullness. God does not give half measures. So the question is this, are we living for less than what God intends us to live for because we disregard Jesus? C.S. Lewis put it like this, often we are like children making mud pies in the sand when God has a holiday cruise planned for us, but we're content just to stay in the mud I ask you this morning to gaze upon Christ the word become flesh to know that what you hunger for is found in him a love that exceeds all loves would you bow with me in prayer right now I'm going to ask Nathan to join me at the front right now this morning if you do not know this Jesus of whom I have spoken I want to invite you to come forward when we begin to sing You may have questions, and that is good. We invite those. So this morning, you may come forward to either Nathan or me, and you may say, Pastor, I just I don't know what it means to follow Jesus. I've heard this about beholding Him, but I don't know how. We would count it a privilege to take the time to talk with you about that. We may step outside out in the hallway just to say, let's just schedule a time where we can discuss this more in depth. Others of you may know Jesus. But this morning you recognize that rather than filling your heart with his glory, you have filled your heart with things that are far, far away from his glory. You want it. You hunger for it. But you've bought into the lie. And you've believed substitutes could fill you better than Jesus. This morning I invite you to come to him in repentance and know that he is full of grace and truth. Father, you know our hearts better than we know ourselves. So I pray that you would direct us to behold Jesus. Let us know him, O oh Lord, and walk with him. And Lord, may you be honored and glorified as we gaze upon Christ. In his name I pray. Let's stand together. If you need to respond, step out as we begin to sing.